Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey there, Em here. Welcome to the show today. Before we dive in, though, I want to take a moment to say that I have absolutely loved meeting with all of you in the pages of God's Word in each one of our times together so far. What a privilege to study alongside each of you. I am so honored and humbled to be your podcast host and Bible study leader, my friends. So with that said, and in an effort to help give us a brief recap of our previous studies in the book of Job back from episode 11, recall along with me that Job was a wealthy man who was described as blameless and upright, a man who carefully obeys God to the best of his ability in all aspects of his life, a man who loves God. Yet, as we saw in chapter 1, in an eerie heavenly courtroom scene, Satan the accuser came before God claiming Job was trusting God only because he was wealthy and everything was going well for him. And so the testing of Job's faith began. God allows Satan permission to destroy his flocks, his possessions, his children, and, as we will see today, eventually his health. Near the end of chapter 1, gripped with grief, Job falls to the ground in worship, proclaiming, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had lost his possessions and family in the first round of Satan's tests, but we see Job react rightly toward God by acknowledging God's sovereign authority over everything he had given him. Job refuses to give up on God, even though he does not understand why this is happening to him. Satan lost the first round. Job passed the test and proved that people can love God for who he is, not for what he gives. I hope you also remember that we took a closer look at the fact that we have information that the characters of this story do not. We know that Job lost all he had through no fault of his own. As he struggled to understand why all of this was happening to him, and will continue to struggle in the chapters to come, it will become more and more clear to us that he was simply not meant to know the reasons. He would have to face life without the answers and explanations. Only then would his faith fully develop. Often the same proves true in our own lives, too. Ouch. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible Personality Profile about Job refers to what is happening here in this way. Children never tire of asking why, yet the question produces a bitter taste the older we get. Children wonder about everything. Adults wonder about suffering. We notice that the world seems to run by a system of cause and effect, yet there are some effects for which we can't find a clear cause, and some causes that don't lead to the expected effects. We would expect Job's wealth and family to give him a very happy life, and for a while they did. But the loss and pain he experienced shock us. The first two chapters of his story are more than we can bear. To those so quick to ask why at the smallest misfortune, Job's faithfulness seems incredible. But even Job had something to learn. We can learn with him. Our age of instant everything has caused us to lose the ability to wait. We expect to learn patience instantly. And in our hurry, we miss the contradiction. Of all that we want now, relief from pain is at the top of our list. We want an instant cure for everything from toothaches to heartbreaks. Although some pains have been cured, we still live in a world where people suffer. Job was not expecting instant answers for the intense emotional and physical pain he endured, 
But at the end, what broke Job's patience was not the suffering, but not knowing why he suffered. We will see this heartache of not understanding why continue to develop in Job's life in the conversations back and forth with his friends in the weeks to come. But for now, let's pause here to read about Job's second test along with his first speech. And as a side note here before we move on, rather than referencing every time I use the study note information from my new Living Translation Life Application Study Bible, please just know that I'm including various excerpts from this Bible off and on throughout this episode. Can I just say once again, it's one of my absolute favorite Bibles, and the links to this Bible and eight others of my absolute favorites can be found on my Bible study resources page on the mfaring.com website. Okay, I believe we have the framework in place and are now ready to move into our reading of Job chapter 2 from the New Living Translation. Ready, friends? Let's begin. Job's Second Test One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, Skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. Job's three friends share his anguish. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names are Elphaz the Temanite. Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nephalite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Wow, so much is happening in these verses for sure, so let's just dive right on in. In her study Job, an unlikely story of joy, Lisa Harper says, For me, the most difficult concept in Job chapter 2, if not the entire book, is the fact that God allows Satan to further afflict Job. Good night, the poor fellow has already presided over the funerals of all ten of his children and most of his team of employees, plus he's faced foreclosure on his estate. It's almost impossible to imagine the depths of his grief in light of those huge, horrific losses. Now that pain is compounded by adding terribly painful, infected, head-to-toe, open sores to his inventory of agony. God's sovereignty over absolutely everything in the world, including allowing the devil to devastate Job beyond what seems humanly bearable, begs this age-old question. If God is truly good, why does he allow such bad things to happen to us? I mean, how in the world could a compassionate creator hand one of his beloved created beings over to that wicked dragon, the very same snake the Apostle John said in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10, comes only to steal from us, kill us, and destroy us? I don't begin to have the wisdom to conclusively answer the question of why God allows suffering. Truthfully, the greatest theological minds in the history of Christendom haven't been able to conclusively answer the question of why our Redeemer allows suffering to happen, so you better bet I can't. 
But I do have enough life experience to believe that if we trust our God is good, and he does good, even when life is really bad, hardship won't make us bitter. It will make us better. It won't break us. It will make us. I don't know why God allows his children to suffer, but I do know that he always makes himself accessible to us when we ache. Here's the deal. Despite how incredibly harsh pain appears from our perspectives, God only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. It's never enough to drag us away from God's presence. Did you hear that important truth, my friends? It's never enough to drag us away from God's presence. But while we're on the subject of Satan, listen into this backstory of sorts about him that I found in my research. Satan, originally an angel of God, had become corrupt through his own pride. He has been evil since his rebellion against God, and Satan considers God as his enemy. He tries to hinder God's work in people, but he is limited by God's power and can only do what he is permitted. Satan is our enemy because he actively looks for people to attack with temptation and because he wants to make people hate God. He does this through lies and deception, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden clear back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, who hates God, also hates God's people. Job, as a blameless and upright man who had been greatly blessed, was a perfect target. The New Living Translation Life Application Bible says this about chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Can Satan persuade God to change his plans? At first, God said he did not want Job harmed physically, but then he decided to allow it. Satan is unable to persuade God to go against his character. God is completely and eternally good. But God was willing to go along with Satan's plan because God knew the eventual outcome to Job's story. God cannot be fooled by Satan. Job's suffering was a test for Job, Satan, and us, not God. Even so, Satan's skin-for-skin comment and the subsequent physical suffering, goodness gracious, friends, In my research, I discovered the actual symptoms of Job's sickness as detailed across multiple chapters in this book included painful festering sores all over his body, nightmares and hallucinations, scabs that peeled and became black, disfigurement and a revolting appearance, bad breath, excessive thinness, plus fever and pain day and night, to name a few. We will see all of these symptoms referenced at some point in time in our future readings of chapters 7, 17, 19, and 30, to name a few. Such pain and torment on top of all Job had already lost in chapter 1. Oh, my friends, can you even begin to imagine? And while we are trying to wrap our heads around the intensity of the pain and grief Job is feeling, I would like to have us take a moment to turn our attention to Job's wife. While I do recognize that her response to Job in encouraging him to curse God and die is harsh, I also think we need to lean in a bit here. Let's just be fair here in acknowledging that Mrs. Job had more than enough reasons to be furious with God. Those seven sons and three daughters were her children, too. Her mama's heart had to be shattered into a million jagged pieces. Like Job, her home and livelihood were gone, too. And now the only person close to her who is left in her life is covered with oozing, infected boils, and unimaginable physical pain. That, too, would be hard to process and go through. That feeling of being unable to fix someone else's pain. I am 100% confident you all know how heartbreaking that feeling is. Is it any surprise that she flat lost it? Such a lot to process, my friends. I don't know about you, but there have been some devastatingly hard seasons in my own life in which I wanted the hurt to stop coming in waves. Sorrow was so deep, I have questioned God. But then there's Job's response to his wife. Truthfully, it is maybe because I have a husband who is tender and level-headed with me in my struggles and rants even. But for whatever reason, I see compassion in Job calling her out for her foolish words. And who knows, 
Maybe he even pulled her into his bleeding sore arms to comfort her when he said those words because he, of all people, knew the raw grief that was behind her anger at God. Let's hear his words to her in that moment once again. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Wow. The New International Version Study Bible indicates these words found in chapter 2, verse 10 are a key theme of the book. Trouble and suffering are not merely punishment for sin. For God's people, they may serve as a trial, as here in Job's case, or as discipline that culminates in spiritual gain, or they may simply be the result of a life in a fallen world. Job's reply to his wife silences Satan the accuser, who is not heard from again. And true to his word here, Job refuses to turn his back on God throughout the long struggle that follows. He faces God with questions, complaints, accusations, and appeals, but he continues to face him and never curses him as Satan said he would. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible says, Many people think that believing in God protects them from trouble, so when calamity comes, they question God's goodness and justice. But the message of Job is that you should not give up on God because he allows you to have bad experiences. Faith in God does not guarantee personal prosperity, and lack of faith does not guarantee troubles in this life. If this were so, people would believe in God simply to get rich. God is capable of rescuing us from suffering, but he may also allow suffering to come for reasons we cannot understand. It is Satan's strategy to get us to doubt God at exactly this moment. Here, Job shows a perspective broader than seeking his own personal comfort. If we always knew why we were suffering, our faith would have no room to grow. Let me say that last part once again for us, my friends. If we always knew why we were suffering, our faith would have no room to grow. Phew, 100% true and 100% hard, excruciating even at times. Moving on in chapter 2, the Jesus Bible devotional titled Trusting God Through Pain reads, Satan's malicious work brought about a perfect storm of calamity in Job's life. Gone were his children and his property, and his physical suffering had left him barely recognizable. In the void of God's silence concerning his situation, Job sought solace in the company of his companions. For a time, they sat in silence with him, sharing in his sufferings. But in subsequent chapters, Job only found more agony as his friends speculated aloud that all these terrible events were the fruit of Job's unfaithfulness and sin. Adversity often leaves people asking why. When answers do not come, believers should not necessarily assume God is ignoring or punishing them for wrongdoing. Scripture promises that God hears prayers and actively works in the most desperate situations to bring about good. The Gospels record the most incredible torment Jesus endured as the supreme example of trusting God in the midst of suffering. Blinded by his pain, but quoting Psalm 22, Jesus exclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though he could not sense his father's presence through the unimaginable anguish, Jesus trusted enough to place his life into the Almighty's hands. His model graphically reminds believers that faith in God's unseen work is possible and profitable, even when they do not feel anything but agony and sorrow. How fitting is it that we see this mention of Jesus' suffering on the cross as we are so recently coming off Holy Week and Easter? I am positive we will see this theme of comparisons between the faith of both Jesus and Job in their sufferings in future episodes, my friends. Stay tuned for more on that. And it's not supposed to be this way. Lisa Turker shares this perspective about what is going on when she says, God next allows Satan to take away even Job's health, and Job's initial response is to defend God's right to do it. But then three friends of Job come to visit him. For a week, they just sit with him in silence, sharing his grief. After that, though, they start giving him advice. 
They say there is one clear reason why Job is suffering. God is punishing him for some unconfessed sin. And because we just studied in the episode for Job chapter 1, you know this is called retributional theology. His friends thought he had to be at fault and needed to repent. They believe God rewards good people and punishes bad people, period. Job responds over and over and over again by saying his affliction isn't his fault. He has done nothing to deserve it. And as a more personal application of what we see happening with Job and the arrival of his friends, the Bible recap reads, he's handling his grief pretty well until three of his friends show up on the scene. They came to show him sympathy and comfort, and they did a great job of that during the seven days when they sat in silence with him. The problem was when they started to speak. Maybe you've had friends like that, or maybe you've been a friend like that. There are some good lessons for us here in how to comfort someone who has experienced trauma. Sitting with them in silence is a pretty good bet, but Job's friends start giving him bad counsel. We will hear from the first one today, Eliphaz. He suggests that Job has brought this trouble on himself, but we know from the story that Eliphaz is wrong here. Well, I promise more on that in a bit. But before we move on to hear Job as he speaks for the first time to his friends, the NLT Life application shares this about their silence. Why did the friends arrive and then just sit quietly? According to Jewish tradition, people who come to comfort someone in mourning should not speak until the mourner speaks. Often the best response to another person's suffering is silence. Job's friends realized that his pain was too deep to be healed with mere words, so they said nothing. If only they had continued to sit quietly, right? Often we feel we must say something spiritual and insightful to a hurting friend, too. Perhaps what he or she needs most is just our presence, showing that we care. Oh, how very many times I have prayed for wisdom to know if silence was what was needed to comfort a hurting friend or family member in my own life. Have you had those moments too? Okay, let's begin reading chapter 3 from the New Living Translation as we hear Job break the silence. Job's first speech. At last Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, Let the day of my birth be erased, and the night I was conceived. Let the day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it, and let the darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar, never again to be counted among the days of the year, never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing would rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let it hope for light, but in vain. May it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to see all this trouble. Why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breasts? Had I died at birth, I would now be at peace. I would be asleep and at rest. I would rest with the world's kings and prime ministers, whose great buildings now lie in ruins. I would rest with princes rich in gold, where palaces were filled with silver, Why wasn't I buried like a stillborn child, like a baby who never lives to see the light? For in death the wicked cause no trouble, and the weary are at rest. Even captives are at ease in death, with no guards to curse them. Rich and poor are both there, and slave is free from his master. Oh, why give light to those in misery, and life to those who are bitter? They long for death, and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for hidden treasure. They're filled with joy when they finally die, and rejoice when they find the grave. Why is life given to those with no future, those God has surrounded with difficulties? I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. 
what I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only trouble comes. Oh, how my heart breaks to hear from Job. The NLT Life Application Study Bible notes, Job's response to his second test, physical affliction, contrasts greatly to his attitude after the first test. Job still did not curse God, but he cursed the day of his birth. He felt it would be better never to be born than to be forsaken by God. Job was struggling emotionally, physically, and spiritually. His misery was pervasive and deep. Never underestimate how vulnerable we are during times of suffering and pain. We must hold on to our faith even if there is no relief. Oh my, have you ever felt that way in times of trouble? Me too, friend. Me too. As a point of reference for all of us here, She Reads Truth Job Reading Plan states, Job's outburst is a healthy reminder that our Redeemer doesn't rank our emotions on a scale from good to bad, allowing only quote-unquote good emotions like joy and peace while barring quote-unquote bad emotions like grief and disappointment. We do not have to censor ourselves before the God who knows our hearts better than we do. Scripture doesn't instruct us to smile on the outside while we die on the inside. Just the opposite, in fact. Frankly, I believe one of the biggest fallacies perpetrated in communities of faith is that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we need to keep a lid on it. We need to understand there's a colossal difference between disagreeing with God and denying his existence altogether. Job cursed the day he was born and expressed confusion, frustration, and even anger at God over allowing tragedy to befall him, but he did not reject God. In fact, the tormented frustration Job hurls toward God proves that he is anything but an atheist. He knows God holds all things together. Faith powered by God can stretch us far beyond our own capacity to endure. Still, it is not our anguish that distances us from God. It's our apathy. The main takeaway from Job chapter 3 is this. We can and should continue to bring all of who we are, including our anger, confusion, and disappointment before God. We can trust Him with every piece of our hearts. According to the New International Version Faith Life Study Bible, This chapter initiates a cycle of speeches that make up most of the rest of the book, chapters 3 through 42. In this first speech, Job curses the day of his birth, essentially saying, I wish I had never been born. He expresses this wish in many different ways, wishing the day he was born never existed, wishing the night of his conception had never happened, and lamenting that he did not die at birth. Finally, we hear him say he longs for death. Moving on to chapter 4, the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible reads, Eliphaz's First Response to Job Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? In the past you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encourage those with shaky knees. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. The lion roars and the wildcat snarls, but the teeth of strong lions will be broken. The fierce lion will starve for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness will be scattered. This truth was given to me in secret, as though whispered in my ear. It came to me in a disturbing vision at night, when people are in deep sleep. Fear gripped me and my bones trembled. A spirit swept past my face and my hair stood on end. The spirit stopped, but I couldn't see its shape. There was a form before my eyes. In silence, I heard a voice say, Can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the Creator? 
If God does not trust his own angels and has charged his messengers with foolishness, how much less will he trust people made of clay? They are made of dust, crushed as easily as a moth. They are alive in the morning, but dead by evening, gone forever without a trace. Their tent cords are pulled and the tent collapses, and they die in ignorance. So as we consider all we have seen happening in our studies today, listen into these thoughts from the spoken gospel. Job has sat in silence for seven days surrounded by his friends. When he finally speaks, he doesn't curse God like the accuser from chapter 1 predicted. Instead, he curses the day that he was born. The fact that Job understands God can both give and take away doesn't diminish the painfulness of his suffering. So Job wails and wishes he had never been born. Job's lament deepens even further. Job believes death would be a sweet release from his brutal suffering. If he was doomed to be born, he wishes he would have died in childbirth. Job wonders why God extends his life if all that's left is misery. He even says the hedge that God used to protect him has become like a prison of misery. This veiled accusation against God causes Job's friend Eliphaz to speak. Eliphaz believes that God doesn't allow the innocent to suffer. He believes suffering is only caused by someone's sin. Compared to God's purity, everyone is guilty. So Eliphaz accuses Job of dishonesty. He must have done something wrong. If Job would just admit it, God would restore everything he had lost. Whenever the innocent suffer, there are always people who offer quick explanations. They say things like, he deserved it and serves him right. Jesus' disciples thought the same way about suffering when they saw a blind man in the book of John, chapter 9, verse 2. But both Job and Jesus reject this as an explanation for all of our suffering. Remember, the book of Job puts our ideas about good and bad, reward and suffering on trial, and this book inches toward the verdict that a version of karma does not run the universe. God does. And God does not believe that everyone who suffers deserves it. God knows the victim can't always be blamed. Eliphaz is wrong. Job is right. There is such a thing as a truly innocent suffering, and God will prove it. In Jesus, God came and innocently suffered for us. This was not simply to prove that innocent suffering exists as a philosophical idea, but to clear our names when people blame us for our suffering. Remember, Jesus' name was dragged through the mud. He was a victim falsely blamed. On the cross, Jesus becomes the curses we've heard about us. At his death, any suffering our friends, family, Satan, and our minds blame us for is nailed to the cross. Jesus disarms weaponized philosophies that blame the victim and shames them for the shame they cause. In Jesus, Job's hope for a cleared name is secure. When we trust Jesus' innocent death, our shame is taken away. And when we hope in Jesus' resurrection, our blame is canceled. Amazing. Just amazing. Further develop what we are seeing here, the Jesus Bible devotional titled Suffering is Punishment reads, Strength to endure affliction often comes through the company of supporting and encouraging companions. However, when Eliphaz spoke, his distorted beliefs only added to Job's suffering. His counsel echoed the persistent human conviction that God brings blessings to the righteous and only allows suffering to fall on sinners, thus concluding that Job must have received just punishment for his sin. Jesus soundly refuted this kind of thinking in the New Testament. In one instance, citing two separate events that resulted in the death of a number of innocent citizens, Christ made it clear that unrighteousness does not always result in personal calamity. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then Jesus quickly responded to his own question with an emphatic, I tell you no. Okay, friends, since we are quickly running out of time here today, I am going to press pause, so to speak, in our conversation about Eliphaz's response to Job. We will continue with his response as we touch on a couple of verses I still want to study in chapter 4 and then dig into chapter 5 and on in our next study time together. 
More to come in episode 14 on all that, I promise. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, I lift up all of my friends listening to this podcast right now. Please help us to see our past and present sufferings not as undeserved actions against us, but as part of your sovereign plan for each one of us. Help us to trust that everything you've allowed in our lives will also serve a purpose for our good and your glory. We trust that you are here with us in the suffering and that your grace and love will see us through to the other side of our present struggles. May we, like Job, be able to say that when all is gone in our lives but you, Father God, that you are enough. And Heavenly Father, please help us to be people who can bring comfort into the hardest and most heartbreaking circumstances of those you have placed in our lives. Your word has so much hope for a hurting world. Please work in us to know both when to be silent when coming alongside a friend in the midst of struggle and also to know when to speak so that you can speak through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, remember when I said way back in the trailer to this podcast these words? Now, my intention is to stay in the 15 to 20 minute range with each podcast episode, but those who know me best can attest to the fact that I tend to get excited and maybe just a bit wordy when I discover something from my study time in the Bible that I just must share. (laughs) Well, I think it is beginning to be more than a little bit obvious that we are pretty solidly landing in the 30 to 35 minute range per episode so far. So, I guess that means you're getting 10 to 15 minutes of bonus content in all of these episodes, my friends. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, I am really learning so many things in my research that I just love sharing with each one of you. With that in mind, please remember that this show is scheduled to release every other Wednesday wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And can I just say that I'm extremely grateful every time one of you leaves stars or a review. I'm just so very appreciative and thankful that you continue to support and encourage me, that you keep showing up to study with me, my friends. If you are curious about digging deeper into any of the things that we talked about today, be sure to check out the show notes by swiping up on your podcast app screen to see them below. But if you can't find them there, they're always available at mfaring.com in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.